Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Self-righteousness is dangerous when people who believe they are right apply rules to each other. Even rules that were meant to protect us become instruments of abuse, cruelty, and exploitation. You need look no further than the barbarity of Twitter mobs, liberal or conservative, to understand this dynamic. For politicians, sooner or later this lack of humility results in civil strife. For clergy and religious teachers, it leads to a kind of apostasy, in this case an outcome of teaching that renounces the teaching of the Bible. The Torah was given to show each of us that our behaviors are unclean. Yet, somehow, we always manage to transfer this shame from our behaviors to the person or persons of our neighbor. Our neighbor. Like the wild man exiled to the garrison graveyard or the woman with the flow of blood is eventually deemed unclean. This is the sin. This is the apostasy. This is the very thing the law was given to correct. Have you never heard what was written? The Lord said to Peter, What God has made clean you must not call unclean. And again, what Peter himself proclaimed, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 159 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Haggai is not a book that comes up very often in discussion. This chapter in Mark is really Jesus coming up against the forces of uncleanness. And Haggai is a book that has a discussion about what happens when the clean and the unclean come into contact. The discussion in Haggai is if you have something clean and it touches something that's unclean, can the clean thing spread its cleanness to the unclean thing? Or does the unclean thing spread its uncleanness to the clean thing? And in the discussion in Haggai, the conclusion is that uncleanness spreads, but cleanness does not spread. And that makes logical sense too. If you have a clean thing in a mundane sense and it touches a dirty thing, you don't say, okay, now I don't need to wash the dirty thing. You say, oh, now I need to wash the thing that used to be clean. Now here in this passage, Jesus is coming into contact with the two things that are most unclean in the Jewish cult. One is a dead body, and another is a menstruating woman or a woman with a flow of blood. Those are the two most unclean things, and that would render anyone unclean under normal circumstances. And let me just make a point about the woman with the flow of blood. 
people will immediately ask the question, does this mean that there's something wrong with women from a biblical perspective? Why is menstruating unclean? It has nothing to do with gender. You have to remember that blood is sacred, that transgressing blood, which is the life that God gives to creatures on earth in Genesis, the dem, the blood, is something very problematic for the Torah. You cannot mess with God's gift of life. So anytime blood is spilled, it is a reminder of man's transgression in Genesis when we took life, whether it was the killing of our brother as sons of Adam, or it was the sacrifice of animals, which is the shedding of the sacred blood, the dem, because of our sins. Blood is unclean because it represents man crossing a boundary he shouldn't. So I want to be clear, it's about the blood, it's not about her gender or about the question of menstruation per se. It's not about dead people, it's not about women. This is, like the entire book of Mark, about Jesus and the seed, the teaching that he's trying to spread. What the passage is showing us is that the teaching of Jesus will overcome any uncleanness. It's saying that there is one thing that is so clean that it can actually overcome those things that are unclean, and that is Jesus' teaching. And the key to understanding the place of women in this passage is to understand that this woman, whom we'll hear was bound for 12 years, was treated by many physicians who couldn't help her, probably because they thought that she was unclean and something was wrong with her because she was bleeding. Which means, as Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, that although law is a good thing, people who don't understand the law use it for wrong purposes and end up causing problems. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is going to step in and apply the Torah correctly, which is not about what's wrong with the woman, but which focuses on the respect for life, which makes helping this woman a duty. Remember that we're reading this in the context of the previous pericope of the man possessed among the Gerasenes. The people actually preferred to take that unclean person and segregate that unclean person and make sure he lived out there among the tombs. And in the same way, these laws about cleanness segregate and separate people so that they can't come into contact with others. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is always transgressing those boundaries that separate people. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. We were in Decapolis, where people marveled at what they heard, not at what they saw. Where people were not impressed with the personality of Jesus, but with the seed that he left behind despite their fear of the power that Jesus wielded. And now he comes back to the other side. He's going back into the territory of his own people. And suddenly there's a large crowd gathered around him, parenthetically because they love him and they're excited about his amazing miracles. And so he stayed by the seashore. Now remember in Deuteronomy, we are warned by the Lord not to follow someone because of their miracles. I want to stress this point in Mark. And Jesus is a son of the commandment. Jesus must be nervous because as soon as he sees the large crowd, we've seen how he acts. He tries to get away from the crowd. 
Notice, the large crowd gathered, so he stayed by the seashore. He didn't enter into the land. He didn't want to go in to begin spreading the seed right away because the crowds always prevent Jesus from teaching. Jesus is, as I said, a son of the commandment. He will not transgress the teaching of Deuteronomy. He will not run the risk of being the false prophet whom everyone marvels at, at the expense of hearing the teaching. That is the point. He wants them to hear the teaching, not be excited about signs and wonders. And this goes against popular Christianity. It goes against the way that people talk in the churches. But as Paul says in 1 Timothy, I say again, Timothy has been entrusted with the biblical tradition. That is what is deposited with Timothy. And he is not to be carried away either by false teaching or by old wives' tales. This is what Paul says, meaning let's not sit around and talk about miracles and amazing events that feel good and inspire. Because if we do that, we run the risk of people not paying attention to that which I am entrusting to you, which is the teaching that Jesus is sowing in the Gospel of Mark. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And this is what Jesus keeps seeing. People want to come to him and they want him to heal. But there's something important here about the symbol of this particular problem. His daughter is at the point of death and God's instruction about blood and the sacredness of blood in the Torah and life, it's linked to life being God's domain, not man's domain has something to do with the specifics about what Jairus is asking of Jesus. The point of the Torah is to give life. The point of the Torah is not to exclude a daughter of Jerusalem, a daughter of Israel. And so on the one hand, Jesus is about to show us when we encounter the woman with the flow of blood, the purpose of the law, which was to take care of this daughter of Israel, the woman who was bound for 12 years, and also to take care of the daughter of Jairus. That the purpose of the law is life. It is not exclusion, as you said earlier. So although the point stands that we are not to be amazed by signs and wonders, insofar as Jesus is a son of the commandment, should he work a sign or a wonder, unlike the false prophet in Deuteronomy, his sign will point back to the meaning of God's instruction. So we're going to learn why you're not allowed to transgress blood in the coming verses. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Again, this is the problem of the crowd. I mean, we get very excited about having crowds at our churches, crowds at our services, crowds at our festivals. We like to count numbers and talk about Jesus is unimpressed by crowds. As a matter of fact, he prefers to avoid crowds. Crowds prevent him from teaching because crowds always have their wants and their desires and they're not interested in the teaching. Every time the crowd is pressing in on him, he can't move, he can't teach, and the seed can't go where it goes. This is the problem with the language of growth and all of the different churches. If you are focused on growth, you will work against the gospel. It's not possible because the teaching is in its content not palatable. It's not palatable. It's not something that will have mass appeal. 
you have to welcome everyone and treat everyone with kindness and be correct in your dealings with people. But you have to say what the teaching says with no regard for whether or not people will like what you have to say. You have to say what you are commanded to say. So there's this inherent tension and Jesus is demonstrating not only that he's willing to say what he was commanded to say, he's showing disdain for popularity because Mark understands in the way that he presents Jesus in the gospel that it's not enough simply to not care about popularity, you have to shun popularity. It's a very serious matter. And you can't have a committee on church growth and read the Gospel of Mark for that basic reason. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had was not helped at all but rather had grown worse. And here I want to say a couple of quick things, Richard, about symbolism. She's bleeding, which again pertains to the function of blood in the Torah and the question of cleanness and uncleanness and God's commandment of life in Genesis. She was, again, bleeding for 12 years, which means she's a daughter of Israel. She had endured much at the hands of many physicians, which means that lots of people tried to help her, lots of teachers, and they couldn't because they don't understand the law or the prophets. In the ancient world, philosophers and physicians were not separate from each other. I mean, remember Aristotle, did a lot of his work in anatomy. So understand when we say physicians, it's not a stretch to say that these are teachers and philosophers because they would all have their philosophical framework they're working from. That continues the theme of 1 Timothy, ironically. But worst of all, she spent all that she had and was not helped. Now it doesn't say that she was a widow, but in principle, physicians and philosophers and leaders of the synagogue in the critique presented in the New Testament are the ones who prey on unsuspecting widows. Jesus explicitly says so in his proclamation against the synagogue in Matthew that religious leaders prey upon widows to take their money. So not only have they not helped her for 12 years, but they've taken from her. They've impoverished her. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Don't forget, we've been talking about the problem of this rabble. This has been a problem up till now. And now we have a woman who seems to be virtuous. She heard about Jesus and she came up to touch him. And she thought, if I just touch him, I'll get well. It seems like she doesn't want to disturb him. She doesn't want to get in his way. It shows that she has faith. So it really is about the teaching with her, and this is how she distinguishes herself from the rest of the crowd. She places trust in the mustard seed, which is why her gesture is small. You cannot allow yourself to lose hold of the context in Mark. I'm referring to the mustard seed not because it sounds nice or it fits or has a kind of good poetic feel. I'm referring to the mustard seed because Mark presented the parable of the mustard seed as a parable of the kingdom. It's a central feature of Mark. All the mobs are all around Jesus cheering, yay Jesus. She doesn't want Jesus to even know she's around. She sneaks up and touches his robe. This is the tiny faith of the kingdom. This is the faith that moves mountains. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. 
Immediately, again, it's this beautiful word, athese. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, twice we hear the word athese, which, as literature, clearly in Mark, brings us back to the beginning of the book. This woman is responding to Jesus with this urgency and this implicit trust that doesn't take time to debate or to analyze whether or not I should or shouldn't. So although Jesus hadn't called her, she's responding with this intensity and this lack of hesitation. And so Jesus responds to her the same way. Both happened immediately. Both happened simultaneously. It was the victory of the cleanness of Jesus overcoming the uncleanness of the woman. And so it gives immediate credence to Jesus, not only as the one who's able to expel the demons only with a word, but also by simply being touched, he expels the uncleanness of this woman. It's like this woman snuck up behind Jesus and took his phylactery and suddenly was healed. She took this little scroll of the Torah with her and she snuck it away. And the reason I use that example is because in the next verse, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and you say, who touched me? It's a good question. Now you think that they're asking that question because it's magic and Jesus knows everyone. And so, No, no, Jesus is asking who touched me because she wasn't healed by Jesus. She was healed by the seed which the Father provides for Jesus to sow. Jesus shows his clear irritation with having to be in this crowd. You've got this big mob of people and you're asking who touched you? Come on, there's a big mob of people. What are you asking us for? But the point is that Jesus didn't know who touched him. He asked because she was healed, not because of Jesus, but because of her trust in the seed. He didn't know because she was healed by his father through the seed that was given to Jesus to sow. And this is what I'm saying about the word immediately. It was so immediate, it blew past Jesus. It wasn't Jesus's will that healed her. It was his teaching that he was bringing. Which is the will of his father to which he submits with the woman with the flow of blood. As you say, there's this confrontation between clean and unclean, but Jesus is bearing witness to it as teacher. It's not Jesus that overcomes the uncleanness. It's, it is the teaching of Jesus that overcomes. It's the word of the Father, the Torah, which Jesus is carrying to the people. And the sad irony of this passage is that she was a daughter of Israel and he still had to evangelize her. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman fearing and trembling, there's that fear again in Mark, Richard, but the woman fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now here, you have Jairus who bowed in fear, and you have this woman who bowed in fear. So the fear here is correct. Fear is a major point in Mark, and here we're seeing fear function correctly. Now, notice here, just like the man who was healed of his demons, this woman is not told to keep her healing secret. Go in peace and be healed. Does not say, don't tell anyone of this. So when the people are being healed, out of their faith and not out of their demands, their faith shows that they've internalized the teaching. If they've internalized the teaching, then Jesus wants them to go out and speak. 
If they have not internalized the teaching, if they've simply taken advantage of the teaching, he wants them to stay quiet and don't talk to anybody. So it's significant that he did not tell this woman, don't tell anybody about what happened. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? There's the lack of faith. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And of course, here, faith, believe, it's all trust. Right. Again, the people in the synagogue think that Jesus is a healer. Ah, okay, he can't do his healing thing because she's dead. Keep moving. They think it's about Jesus' ability to heal. They think he's another one of the physicians, another one of the philosophers. He's not. He actually bears cleanness. He bears life through the teaching that it brings to them. He is a slave of his father's will. That is where Jesus's power comes from. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Here briefly, he's bringing the pillars, which is an allusion to Galatians, because in Galatians, it was very clear that Paul took them aside. He spoke to the pillars in Jerusalem and got their alignment on the gospel and they committed that they supported the gospel, and then they did so publicly in council, and later on they renege on that support. So this is like a trial, but the ones being tried are the witnesses whom he brings with him. And they have to be witnesses of faith, because he says, do not be afraid any longer, only believe, to the synagogue official. So now Peter, James, and John have to see what the fruit of that faith actually is. They came to the house of the synagogue official. He saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. So he makes this absurd statement that is not dead. Well, we all know that he's dead. And this is one thing that Jesus has to continue to confront throughout this book so that people will stop believing their eyes and start believing the teaching because this is what they're going to have to confront when they confront the crucifixion. Like a good professor, Jesus says, we all don't know anything. You have to prove to me, demonstrate that you know what you're talking about. And here, it's not a question of whether or not miracles can happen. It's a question of whether or not they understand the Torah. That's what they have to demonstrate to Do him. they trust Torah? Exactly. They began laughing at him. Well, there's your answer, Dr. Benton. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. And he brought both the parents and those he brought as witnesses because the parents are under judgment as well. In their faith, because Jairus is the one who originally asked Jesus to heal his daughter. Does Jairus believe that Jesus is simply one of the physicians who are ineffective, who brings a teaching that does not give life? Or does Jairus actually have trust in the teaching of Jesus? And this is what distinguishes between one of the mob and someone who actually internalizes the teaching. Now the next verse is classic, classic biblical metaphor on two counts. And then you add the word ephthys, which rounds out the whole passage. Immediately ephthys, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. So, it's immediate. She answers the command of Jesus to stand up. She begins to walk, which is to walk according to the precepts of God's instruction. And why? Because she was 12 years old, because she's a daughter of Israel, just like the woman who was bleeding. 
Interestingly, she was born at the same time that the other woman started experiencing her flow of blood. So while everybody was arguing whether or not this passage has an issue with menstruation, Jesus set free two daughters of Israel to walk and to preach and to live according to God's instruction. And just to complete the verse, and immediately they were completely astounded. Now, here, it's not so clear if being astounded is good, which is confirmed in the subsequent verse. Yeah, because we know that Jairus is the one who wanted this Jesus to come as a healer, but the jury's still out on whether he has faith in the teaching or not. And so once the jury is out on whether one understands the teaching or not, then Jesus has to deal with them differently. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Couple of points here. He doesn't want the word going out because he doesn't want the crowds getting excited about him. He wants them to be committed to the teaching, to fear the teaching, to submit to the teaching, and to trust in it. That's number one. Number two, again, it harkens back to Galatians because you have the witnesses. Paul spoke with them privately. Look, are we all on the same page here that the Torah gives life and that the purpose of the Torah was to set these daughters of Israel free, not to bind them and to take their money for temple service. If they're so astounded when Jesus comes and lifts her up, do they actually believe that his teaching can give life? Why would they be so astounded? But it's at the very moment that the girl gets up that they're astounded. Not when Jesus walks into their house. They're not amazed by what Jesus says they're amazed at what Jesus does and Jesus is trying to make the point in all five chapters of Mark that we've covered so far that it is his teaching that astounds and the very last part of the verse should give every ordained clergyman chills and it should strike fear in our hearts as teachers because Jesus commanded them give her something to eat you have not been feeding the people You've been taking their money. Feeding yourself. As we learned from the prophet Hosea. But you have to feed the people. Give the people something to eat. It's very powerful, even emotional for me. It's so clear that our duty is to feed the people. What are we doing? And he's speaking to the father, who's not only the father, but he's also the head of the synagogue. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. You have a great week, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. The Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.